Romans 3. The Greek verb kaio, it means to set on fire, to burn, to set aflame. And the Greek adverb holos means whole, complete, entirely, all together. And when you put holos together with kaio, you get holocaust. Holocaust literally means entirely set on fire, wholly burned, completely consumed in flames. According to the World War II National Museum, the Holocaust was Nazi Germany's deliberate, organized, state-sponsored persecution and machine-like murder of approximately 6 million European Jews and at least 5 million Soviet prisoners of war. The German Nazis rounded up Jews and other subhumans who were considered Lebens und Wertenslebens, which means life unworthy of life. And they formulated a plan, the Germans did, in 1942, called the Final Solution of the Jewish Question. According to the World War II National Museum, in January of 1942, hundreds of thousands of Jews were already in Nazi concentration camps, serving as slave laborers for the German war effort. They would, be, they would now be herded together at train stations, loaded onto cattle cars, and taken, unknown to them, to extermination camps, killing centers in Poland with specifically designed gassing facilities. Auschwitz, Treblinka, Kelmno, and other SS-run camps employed industrial-style killing using a pesticide designed to kill rats. The old, the very young, and the physically weak were the first to go. Those unable to work, they were killed. And when the strong grew weak and were unable to work, they were killed as well, first gassed and then burned. As the Allied armies moved into Germany and Poland, they liberated the concentration camps and the extermination centers, and witnesses of these scenes War reporters and military personnel were horrified at what they came across. But it wasn't until the camps were liberated that the full horror of the Nazi crimes was exposed to the world. After ordering and overseeing the murder of millions of undesirables and pulling the greatest nations of the world into war against him, Adolf Hitler, like a coward, took the easy way out for his innumerable sins and shot himself. One week ago, April 30th, 1945, Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun committed suicide in a German bunker. One week later, the German Nazis lost their will to fight. And on this day, May 7, 1945, the German high command, represented by General Alfred Jodl, surrendered to the Allied forces led by General Dwight D. Eisenhower. The fighting of World War II was effectively over. But now the Allied forces would, face, would be faced with cleaning up the horror of human extermination camps, punishing the brutality of the German war criminals, and rebuilding and restoring land and property damage across Europe. Hitler left all of humanity asking, how could this happen? How could men be so hate-filled? How could men be so calloused and calculating against other men? How could the Nazis treat men, women, and children made in the image and likeness of God so savagely? What happened? What happened in Hitler's heart? The answer to that question is nothing. That's the problem. Nothing happened in Hitler's heart. He began and ended his life in the same spiritual condition, brothers and sisters total rebellion to God. And the same goes for all the soldiers and civilians who aided the extermination of the Jews. They were all born enemies of God, and they never changed their condition. 
They grew bolder and bolder in their rebellion to God, and they sought to build their own little Nazi kingdom in Germany, ultimately seeking to take over the world. Brothers and sisters, what makes us any different than German Nazis? Because technically, I would say as a nation, we're no different than Nazi Germany. We have our own little person holocaust going on since Roe versus Wade was decided in January 22, 1973, after which we have collectively as a nation aborted more than 63 million babies. We've been able to stomach, as a nation, we've been able to stomach the violence of our own little person holocaust because the murderer is a doctor, a healthcare professional, nice euphemism, who doesn't use poisonous gas or guns to kill, but instead uses medical-grade pliers to violently grab little limbs of children concealed in the cameraless womb of their mothers, tearing their bodies apart and discarding them in the trash can where they are treated like human waste. And so, brothers and sisters, how on earth is such horrendous evil possible? How can doctors and mothers be as calculating as callous as Hitler how can our civil society exterminate children more effectively than Nazi extermination happened with the Jews? And how can our system get away with it? How can there be such incredible evil in the hearts and minds of men and women in our country? Answer, look at it. It's there in Romans 3, verse 9, where Paul writes, What then? Are you any better? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, Germans and Americans, men and women, are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the paths of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we call this condition of man, so clearly articulated by Paul, referencing the Proverbs and multiple Psalms, we call this condition total depravity. In a community Bible church, like every other true and faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years, we recognize that inherently, from conception, all humanity is sin-filled to the core, entirely spiritually bankrupt, unable to love, unable to please God. Worse still, men are satisfied in this condition. Do you get that? Men are satisfied in this condition, happily, continually in rebellion toward God. Do you know, brothers and sisters, guests here today, that you were born totally depraved, a perfect rebel and enemy of God? Do you know that about yourself? Earlier this week, I was at Costco having my hot dog, and I asked a few folks, are men born morally good? Neutral or bad? What do you think was the dominant answer that I received from your brothers and sisters in our community down the street sharing lunch at Costco? Neutral. Neutral. Neither good nor bad. Just kind of right there in the middle. 
because they recognize a little bit of their sinfulness, but they've got a lot of good in them too. And you can choose good. You can make kids good. Turning your Bibles to John chapter 2, as we come to understand something about total depravity, the nature of man, and genuine saving faith. Total depravity, friends, it doesn't mean that everyone is a racist like Hitler or a murderer like Hitler. That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity means that you have, only the, you, you have all of the ability to sin, and sin you will. That's the only ability you have is sin. Sin you will. To the degree that you are satisfied with all of your sinning, as your sinning helps you build your own little kingdom of sinning glory for you. Total depravity means that nothing you do is glorifying to God until God causes something to change inside of you, until God causes you to be born again, spiritually rebirthed. You see, the antidote to total depravity is spiritual rebirth. It's the only antidote to total depravity. You must be born again, born again by God, which will be the topic of conversation next week to my excitement as we approach John 3 and get Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. For today, we are still with Jesus at his first ministry Passover in Jerusalem, which happens during Jesus' first year in ministry in A.D. 30, which is where you are in John 2. John's gospel starts with a powerful prologue in which he declared repeatedly that Jesus is God. And from the prologue, John retells 10 confessions of Jesus' deity from five eyewitnesses of his glory, which happen on the first six days of Jesus' ministry. We love hearing these titles that come from these confessions. Jesus is the Word made flesh, the unique God, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and from Jesus' own lips, that messianic title, the Son of Man. John 2 is a transition chapter, as it were, taking us out of the first week of Jesus' ministry, which ended at sign one in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turned water into wedding wine, and taking us on the road with Jesus, headed south to Jerusalem for Passover. The Apostle John won't record sign two in his gospel until Jesus returns back up north to Cana of Galilee in John 4.46, which causes many Bible scholars to see this section of text from John 2.12 to John 4.46 as the Cana cycle. Start in Cana, go to Jerusalem, go back up to Cana, the Cana cycle. And we'll be spending the next several months here in the Cana cycle, where Jesus went down from Cana of Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. However, godly Jews and the apostle John himself always speak about going up to Jerusalem, regardless of where you're coming from, because Jerusalem, friends, is a city on a hill among the hills of Judea, and it sits about 3,000 feet in elevation gain above the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus will start his ministry. Three of Jesus' seven signs will be performed in Jerusalem, including Jesus' greatest sign, which is resurrection from the dead. And as a result, John takes his readers into Jerusalem right away. So you get familiar with the city and the settings and Jesus' presence there. And he wants to reinforce this main idea. This main idea in his gospel is this. Jesus is God. He says in John 20, 31, these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Regarding the signs in John's gospel, I choose to employ a list of six criteria in determining the seven signs in Jesus' ministry. Let me make sure that you have my list of six criteria for John's signs to be counted as a sign 
One of John 7, the sign must include, number one, eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Number two, specific numerical data in the context. Number three, the word believe in the context. Number, wor- number four, the word semion or sign in the context. Number five, a physical demonstration of a supernatural work. And number six, recognition of John's numbering of the signs. The water to wine sign is number one because John numbered it, number one. Jesus scourging in the temple upon his arrival in Jerusalem is not the second sign of Jesus' seven signs because John specifically numbers Jesus' healing of the royal official son in Cana of Galilee at John 4, 57 as sign number two, this second sign Jesus also did. What we find then is that between Jesus' seven signs recorded by John, John is going to supplement his seven signs that prove Jesus' deity with additional demonstrations of Jesus' authority, zeal, teaching, counseling, and evangelism. And so we read in John 2, verse 12, after this, that is, after sign number one, turning water into wine, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, all of them. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said to them, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus said to them, You destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then asked him, It took 46 years to build this sanctuary, and will you, of all people, raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. And so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture And the word which Jesus had spoken. And now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Over the last two weeks I shared with you in this text John remembers three moments of Jesus' ministry muscle at the Temple Mount that resulted in belief. I shared with you that this text, in this text, John shares three points in Jesus' Passover zeal in Jerusalem so that you will believe. Now, we asked, what are these points in Jesus' Passover zeal in Jerusalem that are remembered so that we will believe? Well, we saw first, two weeks ago, the scourge in the temple from verses 12 through 17. The scourge in the temple. Second, we saw the sanctuary in the temple, verses 18 through 22. The sanctuary in the temple. Jesus himself is the sanctuary, was in the temple. Third, for today, we're going to see the signs in the temple, verses 23 to 25. So these three points in Jesus' Passover zeal in Jerusalem. The scourge in the temple, the sanctuary in the temple, and the signs in the temple. The signs in the temple is the third of three points in Jesus' Passover zeal that we will be looking exclusively at today. The signs in the temple, verses 23 through 25. Now, regarding these three final verses in chapter 2, Pastor John MacArthur says the following. These three verses serve as a bridge 
between the account of the cleansing of the temple and the story of Nicodemus. Though brief, this section has profound implications concerning the nature of saving faith. We need to consider the nature of saving faith today. Everything seems to be going Jesus' way at his first Passover in Jerusalem. He wanted to drive out the sellers of the animals and the money changers, and he did just that. He wanted to both command the Jews to kill him and confuse the Jews regarding the temple of doom that is his body, and he did that as well. And in two years' time, these same Jewish authorities, confused as they are, they will destroy the temple of Jesus' body, and Jesus will be raised from the grave, and they will have in front of them the very sign that they wanted, and yet very, very few of those same Jewish authorities will see and believe. Jesus' interaction here with the Jews is loaded, friends, with thick and heavy irony, even the irony of belief, which we see next as we come to the third of three points in Jesus' Passover zeal, number three in our notes, the signs in the temple from verses 23 through 25. Let's read the text again from verse 23 where John says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw his signs, which he was doing. Immediately, you want to respond to this text. And your heart wants to say, praise the Lord. Yes. Great job, Jesus. Salvation at Passover in Jerusalem. Wow. Amen. Because this is exactly what Jesus can and must do to human beings. He must cause belief in our hearts. He must save This text seems then at face value to indicate that genuine salvation was in the hearts of many in Jerusalem at Passover A.D. 30. It seems like a perfect fit. Jesus does a deep cleanse of the temple, declares his resurrection, and delivers salvation. It's a perfect week of ministry. It's a grand slam Passover, you could say. But is belief in Jesus always belief in Jesus? Is all faith saving faith? William Hendrickson says, not all faith is saving faith. Do you believe that? Is that what you understand about faith? Who gets to sit in judgment of another person's faith? Isn't faith something owned by an individual and no one can tell anyone else what to believe or not to believe? How can anyone possibly sit in judgment of someone else's personal faith? Turning your Bibles to Matthew 7. Friends, do you understand the effect of total depravity on faith? I want you to focus on that question this morning. Do you understand the effect of total depravity on faith? I hope you believe in the sick and twisted age in which we live, the faith of many must be rejected and refuted. I hope you believe like I do, the faith of many must be rejected and refuted. The beliefs of many in our society are absolutely absurd. Men and women are believing the most ridiculous and destructive lies about themselves, about others, about Jesus, about the Bible, about their purpose in this world? Do you know the names Dylan Mulvaney, Rachel Levin, Bruce Jenner? 
Our sinful condition at birth, our total depravity, has forever tainted and disfigured human faith. I'll say that again. Our sinful condition at birth, our total depravity, has forever perfectly tainted and disfigured human faith to the extent that it's virtually unrecognizable. Let me share with you a few pictures of human faith and belief, even from this past week. SatanCon was held in Boston last week. The opening ceremony of SatanCon, this annual event, was hosted by a woman in a black dress tearing pages out of a Bible while shouting, Hail Satan! All to the grand applause of her audience. The speakers at SatanCon included a man named Eric Sprankel, a sexual studies professor at Minnesota State University, Mankato, who taught a session titled, quote, Sins of the Flesh, Satanism, and Self-Pleasure. Professor Sprankel was followed by Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina, Debbie B. Dillard Wright, a trans woman who delivered a lecture at SatanCon titled, quote, Reclaiming the Trans Body, Atheistic Strategies for Self-Determination and Empowerment. Speaking of trans bodies, according to Fox News, the Biden administration is offering a $500,000 grant to help teach the English language in Pakistan, in part by providing intensive professional development courses for Pakistani transgender youth. You didn't know this, but our government is interested in the transgender youth in Pakistan. And so we are interested because the transgender youth in Pakistan, they need to better participate in the global community and prepare them for success in the workplace. And so if we send English teachers who are caring and loving about the plight of transgender kids in Pakistan, we can help those kids. Transgender university professors are teaching sexual perversion at SatanCon in Boston. Joe Biden wants sexual revolutionary American English teachers to encourage and embolden sexually deranged Pakistani students and will gladly use American taxpayer money to make it happen. Question, what do President Joe Biden and his whole administration share in common with Satan-worshipping transgender American college professors? Answer, more than we know, unfortunately. But this one thing they do share perfectly, and we know this. They all reject the command on their lives to repent from sin and believe, love, and obey Jesus alone. I know that. They reject that wholeheartedly, the command to repent. And now we have to ask, shall we tell them they're wrong? Can we approach someone in this society and tell them, no, you're wrong? Shall we tell them their faith is errant, lies, Deception? Satanic? <laughs> Who can tell them that they're wrong? Who will tell them they're wrong? How do you get them to stop? Who will tell them their faith is evil? Hitler evil. And that they should repent. Brothers and sisters, allow me to argue from the lesser to the greater. If men are able to believe that they are truly women, then it becomes very easy to see, very, very easy to see, that many, many people are able to trick themselves into believing in Jesus 
when they don't believe in Jesus at all. Not the Jesus of the Bible. Do you agree with that? Do you understand what I'm saying with that? Such is the case where you're at in Matthew chapter 7, if you look at verse 21, where Jesus expresses his concern for false faith at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, saying in verse 21, not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that guy will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy and in your name cast out demons and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, brothers and sisters, clearly these people had faith. Clearly, it was false faith. They had faith in a Jesus of their own understanding. They worship, friends, a fake Jesus. The call on our lives is to worship the real Jesus, like he tells us to worship him, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I would encourage you, and I plead with you, don't fall victim to fake, phony faith. Don't fall victim to a popular opinion Jesus, a social justice Jesus, a wokeism Jesus, a critical race theory Jesus. Don't fall victim to fake, phony, false religiosity. Don't fall victim to Roman Catholicism, Seventh-day Adventism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnessism. How many of you personally were raised in fake phony, false faith. I know many of you were Roman Catholics growing up. Look at the warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 7, 15. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so then, you will know them by their fruits. Brothers and sisters, here... In Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, here is the answer to our big question. How can anyone sit in judgment of the faith of someone else? Answer, thank you, Jesus. You will know them by their fruits. With this comment, Jesus is calling on all genuine believers to be discerning about spurious faith, fake faith, phony faith, be discerning. If you really love people, you will have great sensitivity to the words of their mouth, which are the meditations of their heart, and you will be discerning about the behavior that follows the words. Turn back in your Bibles to John 2, 23. Jesus expects us, friends, to evaluate, examine, and judge our own hearts, our own faith, our own desire to love Him and to keep His commandments. He also expects us to examine, evaluate, and judge the faith of our brothers. 
You say, wait a second, judge somebody else, the pastor Oliver? Yeah. You ever read Matthew 18, 15? If your brother sins, go to him and tell him his sin in private. If your brother listens to you, you've won your brother. Yeah, you're supposed to be considering the confessions of someone's mouth and the behaviors that follow because it's unloving to allow unbelievers to think that they are genuine believers. At the same time, genuine faith, those who are truly saved, will happily receive evaluation, examination, and judgment of their behavior. James asks rhetorically in James 2.14, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith, the worksless faith, save him? The answer is obvious. No. Genuine faith is always proven by the fruit of the behavior. Which is why James concludes his thought about genuine faith, saying in James 2.26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works, that's dead. Jesus encountered faith at his first Passover. Jesus encountered pistis, pistuo. He encountered belief among the people at Passover. There were those there in the crowd who believed. John chapter 2, verse 23 says, Many believed, pistuo, many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not pistuo. He was not believing himself in them. He was not entrusting himself to them. He was not believing himself in them. More literally, the Greek text reads, But Jesus himself was not believing in them. The Greek verb here is pastuo, which John is using very intentionally to contrast the belief of the crowd and the belief of Jesus. They were believing in him, but Jesus was not believing in them. And someone will ask, inevitably, someone will ask, why, Jesus? Why? It's their choice to believe in you, right? Why won't you honor their decision, Jesus? Why can't you just love and believe them because they are clearly expressing love and belief in you? Jesus, you should think the best of those people. You should think the best of their believing in you. Really, friends? Is that what's going on here? Shall Jesus yield his omniscience to embrace the faith of totally depraved men and women? Can't you see these people are engaged in idolatry? They've got a Jesus of their own understanding. Notice that John is reporting what they said. It's not the case that John is saying they were given salvation and faith by Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say that. It is the case that John is reporting the condition of several human hearts after watching Jesus perform many miracles and many signs. And the condition of the heart was they took a liking to the guy. They just took a liking to the guy, like we're going to see in chapter 6. They liked him because he made bread. They liked the guy that does miracles. They, they took a liking to him. They are liking the idea of Jesus, the man of many signs, but only if he continues to do his tricks when and how they want him to do them. Because they have a Jesus of their own understanding in their mind. This is called idolatry. They're, they're worshiping their own God. They're worshiping a brand of Jesus 
Not Jesus according to his truth, his message. They've made up a Messiah of their own understanding. Jesus knows their faith is conditional, selfish, and bankrupt. This is the faith that comes out of those who are born totally depraved. This is exactly the faith of the totally depraved. They don't want his message as much as they want his miracles. Whatever their faith is actively doing, it includes idolatry and greed, and Jesus just refuses to play ball with these people. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13. Edward Clink says, The suggestion of this verse, then, is not that the crowds understood Jesus in sharp contrast to the temple authorities. That's not it. Rather, he says, it is claiming, the verse is, it is claiming, in fact, that they did not understand him. Just as the temple authorities were blinded by their own agenda and understanding of God, so also were the people blinded by their own understanding and their own agenda. Clink says, the prologue has already informed us of this irony in chapter 1, verse 11. The irony of belief. D.A. Carson says, the people believed in his name even though their faith was spurious. To exercise faith on the grounds of having witnessed miraculous signs is precarious. Although miracles cannot command faith, it is better to believe on the grounds of miracles than not at all. Even Jesus says that. John MacArthur says about these people, and Jesus responds to them, he had no faith in their faith because such faith was shallow, superficial, disingenuous. The difference between spurious faith and saving faith for Pastor John MacArthur is crucial, he says. It's crucial because it's the difference between living faith and dead faith. We are obligated to pay attention to spurious faith, fake faith, phony faith. Not simply in other people, but also to check our own hearts. Test yourselves, brothers and sisters. What faith do you have, a living faith or a dead faith? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says this to people that he loves, people that he's worshiped with, people that he's evangelized. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? He goes on to say in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 13, but I hope that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. And I appreciate that boldness. Because in saying that, Paul says, if you test yourself and you know you're saved, it'll come with humility and repentance and you will prove the faith that Christ put inside of you. We need to have that boldness, the boldness of Paul. But we need to test our faith. Because James 2.19 says that demons believe in Jesus and they tremble. Did you get that? Demons believe in Jesus and they tremble. And sadly, brothers and sisters, many Christians have the same faith that demons have. Many Christians, Christians, air quotes, have demon faith. They acknowledge Jesus' person, but deny his lordship and authority. They know he has power, but refuse obedience to his commands. Can you think of a billion people who do this? The Roman Catholic system. What tests can we run on ourselves to determine if our faith is spurious, fake, phony, fraudulent? I hope that's a question that's inside of your heart. It's a great question. Ralph Tasker gives us two tests when he says, Jesus regarded all belief in him as superficial, which does not have as its most essential elements, number one, the consciousness of the need of forgiveness. 
And number two, the conviction that he alone is the mediator of that forgiveness. You need to run your faith through these two tests. How much forgiveness do you need for the sins that you commit? Who alone has supplied all the forgiveness for your sins? Even the sin of abortion, which Jesus covers. There's mercy even for that sin. There's mercy and grace. Do you know that? Has that grace and mercy washed over you? That Jesus can heal abortion? What else can Jesus heal? What can Jesus' forgiveness not heal? How much of Jesus' mercy and forgiveness do you need today? It was a rough week last week, wasn't it? How much mercy do you need today? Perhaps you need more reasons to test your faith. Well, good. You're in Matthew 13, where Jesus explains just how deceptive false faith can be by using a farming metaphor. Brothers and sisters, I really want you to think through and consider all the implications of the faith word picture Jesus presents in Matthew 13 as we read the parable of the soils together, Matthew 13, 1. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got out into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell by the rocky places and where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on good soil and were yielding crop, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus answered and said to him, said to them, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he who will have an abundance, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, just like the end of Acts chapter 28 where Paul says the same thing. Look, Jesus, look what Jesus says here. You will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the hearts of this people have become dull and with their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes lest they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Here are the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was thrown, or on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky place, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. 
And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. Brothers, when you, brothers and sisters, when you read this text, you can't help but come away with this fact. Genuine faith is given by Jesus. The parable is given to conceal the truth. The truth is present for all men, but wicked men, born totally depraved, are unable to grab the truth and save themselves by it. And for this reason, Paul says to all genuine believers in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, the faith, not of yourselves. The faith is a gift of God, lest any one of us should think to boast. Turn your Bibles to John 2, 24. Genuine faith, friends, is objective. It is unquestionably given out by God. We praise God for this very fact, that He is the issuer of faith. It's not a matter, friends. Faith is not a matter of getting smarter and wising up. Faith is not a matter of performing prayers like Roman Catholics, going on missions like Mormons, or suffering dietary restrictions like Seventh-day Adventists. Genuine faith, the faith of true salvation unto eternal life, is a free gift of God. It's a gift graciously placed on enemies. Could you imagine World War II walking across enemy lines and handing the German soldier a gift called faith? That's what Jesus does with you. He's crossed the lines. He walks right into your hostility and issues the faith that you don't have. That's salvation. Because we're born totally depraved, unable to come up with that faith ourselves. And he knows it. He absolutely knows it. And so he has to deliver it. And deliver it, my Savior does. He delivers. He delivers to those born totally depraved, like me, who enjoyed living in my own level of sin and degree of sin right up until the moment of the salvation that he placed into my heart. And after salvation, the saved then become new creatures, a whole new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're at John 2, 24 where Jesus knows old things haven't passed away and new things have not come into the hearts of this crowd of Jews in Jerusalem at the temple. And for this reason, Jesus does not believe in this crowd. He doesn't believe the belief of the crowd. And perhaps it's important to note at this point that several evangelical Christians believe the greatest aspect of God's creation is Man's free will. Have you ever heard this? You ever engaged in this conversation with people? They get so excited to talk about God's glory in man's free will. Many of these folks would ask and should ask of this text if they were sincere and genuine in their desire for man's free will being the greatest glory of God. They should ask these questions. Why are you unbelieving, Jesus? Why are you unbelieving? 
How can you possibly be unbelieving with these people? How can you possibly think to say that you don't believe in these people? How can it be the case? Isn't Jesus supposed to be excited by man's free will? I mean, after all, these people have made their choice. They decided in their heart to accept Jesus and his signs. They love Jesus and the miracles that he's performing. Why can't Jesus embrace their truth, their reality, their faith, their belief on their terms? Why can't Jesus do that? How can Jesus possibly sit in judgment over the belief of the crowd, especially when they are using their own free will to respond in faith to Jesus? Maybe these questions are some of y'all's questions. That's great, because the answer to those questions is right here in the text. In our text today, John discloses two reasons for Jesus' unbelief that declare Jesus is God. John offers two explanations for Jesus' unbelief that demand our fearful devotion to him. What two reasons for Jesus' unbelief declare Jesus is God and demand our devotion? The first reason for Jesus' unbelief is number one in your notes at verse 24, Jesus knows all men. Number one for your notes of these two reasons for Jesus' unbelief. Number one, Jesus is unbelieving because, number one, Jesus knows all men, verse 24. Second, Jesus knows in men, verse 25. Number one, Jesus knows all men. And number two, Jesus knows in men, verse 25. You see, it is not the case that Jesus is confused by spurious, fake, false, phony, belief of the crowd. He fully expects that his signs and miracles would marvel the crowd and that they would laud him. Jesus' response of unbelief in this crowd should be fully expected. Moreover, based on John's stated goal that he wants his audience to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name, we should expect from John this type of explanation of Jesus' deity, that Jesus has total knowledge of everything happening inside of the hearts of humanity. It is critical for us to know where mankind sits in relationship to Jesus Christ. We sit beneath him. He is our creator, the Lord, our king, our savior. The one who we see knows all men. Point number one in your notes, the first of two reasons for Jesus' unbelief. Number one, Jesus knows all men. John states this fact of Jesus' deity plainly in verse 24 saying, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. D.A. Carson says, sadly, their faith was spurious and Jesus knew it. Unlike other religious leaders, he cannot be duped by flattery, enticed by praise, or caught off guard in innocence. The Greek verb translated know is the verb gnosko, and it means to know, to recognize, to understand, and speaks of intimacy as it can be used for sexual relations. And so we should ask the question, what does Jesus intimately understand about men? Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. What does Jesus know about all men? Well, I would tell you this. Jesus knows the ancestry of all men. He knows your great, great, greatest grandparents. 
Jesus is our creator God who spoke the world into existence in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after five literal days of creation that happened roughly 6,500 years ago, on the sixth day, Moses, through the Holy Spirit's power, would have us know in Genesis 1, 27, and God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female. Did you get that? Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. And not only did Jesus create Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve, his wife, from a rib taken from his side, moreover, Jesus so graciously communicated to Adam the expectations that he had for his behavior in Genesis 2.16. So important to see this. Genesis 2.16 says, And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Do it. Do it, man. Eat freely. Do you see what I've provided for you? Go get it. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right there in the center of the garden, that tree right there, you shall not eat from that tree. For in the day that you eat from that tree, I'm telling you now, you will surely die. Brothers and sisters, this is just a very kind way, a very generous way for God to say, Adam, I'm God, you're not. And by this command, God makes it known to Adam that his behavior is subjected to the Creator's will. You see, Adam's will is not free. He doesn't have free will. His will is very bound. Adam's will is limited. Adam's will is restricted. Adam cannot will to touch the sun or ride the stars in the sky. Even in the perfection of Eden, Adam probably only had a two-foot vertical jump at best. He would not be playing in the NBA. Jesus created gravity to keep men's feet bound on the earth because of our glory complex. You say, what glory complex, Oliver? We are made in the image and likeness of God. And as a result of being made in the image and likeness of God, we have a glory complex. The problem is we were supposed to take the glory complex and be united with God forever, creating glory for him. That's why you were born. That's why you exist. That's why God created so that we would join him in the glorification of himself as the creator. We didn't join him. We turned to glorifying ourselves. However, in our own sin, we chose to glorify ourselves rather than God, and we do this continually. And as a result, gravity puts major restrictions and limitations on our pursuit of our own glory. You would think between the goodness of the Garden of Eden and the restrictions of gravity and God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam had enough to live happily in paradise forever even with his two-foot vertical jump. But Adam and Eve didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, did they? No, they did not. And it was not incumbent upon God to create them with the Holy Spirit inside of them. God sent Satan to test their obedience without the Holy Spirit inside of them. How did this go? Look at Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, God has said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the trees, the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the, tree, uh, the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will, die, will not die. For God knows that in the days that you eat from from that tree, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, 
and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And so she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Jesus saw our greatest grandparents fail in obedience. He saw their pursuit for self-glorification. He saw their attempted cover-up. And as the text even says next, Adam and Eve believed that they could hide from Jesus and lie to Jesus. But Jesus knew exactly where they were at and exactly how to prosecute them for their greed and for their lies, and exactly how to discipline them as they were required for, further, for, for their disobedience against his law, against his rule. And Jesus took life from Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, just like he said he would. He took life from them. He didn't kill them eternally, and nor did he kill them physically. It is the case that at the fall of Adam and Eden, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, into greed and temptation and sin, Jesus killed them spiritually on that day. And you know why? The reason why is this, because God is not a liar. Our God is not a liar. He was not about to deny himself and deny his word when he said that he would surely cause them to die if they ate of that tree. And so they died, absolutely, because with our God, there is no shifting shadow. There's no variation. There's no partiality. He said it. He did it. And as a result, they spiritually died that day. Forever, they would be unpleasing to God, rebels in his sight, enemies of his righteousness, unless he fixed it. Not to mention, all the children born to them would bear this same wicked condition. The same wicked condition would fall to their children. The knowledge of nakedness, the rebellion to God, the evil, wicked, sinful heart, it falls to their children as well. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knew all of this would happen. He knew it all would happen. It didn't stop him from his creation plan. You know, why he, you know why it didn't stop him from his creation plan? Because before the creation plan, before the creation plan, there was a glory plan in eternity past. In eternity past, he had a glory plan, and the glory plan included names, names of those who he would save. And so the desire for God for his glory goes to the name, the, the, the book of names, the Lamb's book of life. That book drives the need for creation. And so creation was going to have all of these stumbling blocks along the way. Because ultimately, what's, going to God, what's, what's God going to get at the end? He's going to get the book of names with him in heaven forever. That's what's happening down here on this earth. He's offering salvation to those whom he's chosen to save. He knew men would forever be trapped in their sin, unable to satisfy the wrath of God against their evil, sinful, rebellious hearts. And for this reason, the Lord gives the gospel in Genesis 3.15, which discerning ears will hear when Jesus says to the serpent, Satan, in verse 15, and I, God, will put enmity, hostility, between you, Satan, and this woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, he, the singular one, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." That speaks of the struggle between Jesus and Satan, specifically at the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This verse is called the Proto-Evangelium, the original gospel, the first telling of the good news, that salvation would come, man would be healed, death would be defeated by a Messiah born of the woman. Not only does Jesus know all men, Jesus had made provision for the salvation of men through the seed of the woman. This grace was given for Adam and Eve to hear while they lived in their rebellion and to hold on to as proof that God must restore the relationship 
that man broke with him because there is nothing in man that can repair the unrighteousness in man, which brings us to point number two. Turn to Genesis 6.5. Genesis 6.5. Our text in John declares that Jesus knows all men, and we see that in Genesis 1-3, to which we just covered. And we can understand why Jesus is the creator. He's the savior of all humanity. That's how he knows men. And so we see second in our passage at John 22, 23 to 25, we see second, the second reason of Jesus' unbelief, Jesus knows in men. You're at Genesis 6, 5, where we're going to see Jesus knows in men. Jesus knows in men is to say that Jesus knows what is inside men, inside of all men's hearts. Regarding the heart of man, James Boyce says, according to the God, the heart is filled with madness, mischief, and evil. It is impenitent, darkened, gross, hard, proud, blind, filled with lust. Jesus knows this all too well. He's been watching us since he created us in the garden. And he watched us right up until Genesis 6 and even through in Genesis 6-5 when he says this. Moses records, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. That's where you want to be, brothers and sisters, at the place of divine favor from God, not because Noah deserved it, but because Jesus is so filled with grace. You want him to put his grace onto you. In this text, the Hebrew verb translated regretted is the word nakam, which means to be sorry or to be grieved. Yahweh was pained. He was troubled because of the wickedness that consumed the hearts of the men that he had created. His solution was a global flood, which will only yield the lives of eight, Noah and seven others. Does Jesus know the hearts of men? Absolutely. Is Jesus troubled by the thoughts and desires and beliefs of men? Yes, he is continually. Is Jesus' eternal plan for his glory thwarted by the sinfulness of men? Not a chance. But what do we know about our God from Romans 9.22? Romans 9.22 says this, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Brothers and sisters, the ways and the plans of God are foreordained. They're predetermined, predestined for our good and for his glory. For his glory, our God is long-suffering and patient with sinful, wicked men. And for this, I'm thankful. Because God's long-suffering and patience allows you to be here today. You see, if God gave you justice, you'd have died in your sleep last night. But he didn't do that. Instead, my God is so merciful that he allowed mercy for you. And you woke up this morning, and with the poking and prodding of the Holy Spirit, he poked and prodded you to put on your Sunday best and show up at church and to hear a message from a preacher to convict you of your own sinfulness and your need for salvation in Christ alone. Are you, friend, praising God for his grace, his long-suffering, and his patience toward you? Would you turn back in your Bibles to John 2, 25, as we look to close our time? Men need God's grace, patience, long-suffering to see the sinfulness of our sin. Regarding the heart of man, Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart of man is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can know it? And consider this quote from longtime pastor of St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida, R.C. Sproul, who said, people often ask, why do bad things happen to good people? R.C. says, I say to them, that's only happened once and he volunteered. 
Now, you have to love this quote because Sproul is highlighting the fact that Jesus is the only one who was ever good. Sproul's response says, look, man, we're all bad. We're all bad. Don't you get it? Don't tell me you're good, you hypocrite. We're all bad. Bad things happen to bad people. This is life, friends. This is reality. It's reality that Jesus, who is the creator, he knows all too well, which is why you need his grace and his mercy and his faith. And so it's no surprise to read John's words in John 2.25 when he says, And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, Jesus is God. And to, and to believe that men need to testify to Jesus about what's inside of man is absolutely absurd. He's the creator of men. He knows exactly what's inside the hearts of each and every person in this room and around this globe right now. Leon Morris says there is no doubt as to the fact of Jesus' knowledge. This is to be understood in light of the Old Testament view that God alone knows the hearts of all men. William Hendrickson says it, is, it was not necessary for Jesus to listen to testimony concerning any particular person for his own penetrating eyes were able to look into the very depths of the person's heart as we will see even next week with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I ask you today, what is in the very depth of your soul? What is in the very depth of your soul? Do you know man? Do you know man? what man is? Do you know what is in man? Do you know man needs salvation found in Jesus alone? How well do you know man? Perhaps a little quiz to end our time will help you to see if you know men like Jesus does. I'm going to give you three quotes consecutively. One, two, three. And I want you to tell me who is the person that gave these quotes. Quote, quote number one. Today, Christians stand at the head of this country. I pledge that I will never tie myself to parties who want to destroy Christianity. That's quote number one. Quote number two, I am now, as before, a Catholic and will always remain so. That's quote number two. Quote number three is this, from the same person. No salvation is possible until the bearer of disunion, the Jew, has been rendered powerless to harm. All three of those quotes came from one man. His name was Adolf Hitler. He believed that he was ushering in national salvation for Germany by murdering millions of Jews. I hope this quote of, of, these quotes of Adolf Hitler cast your mind back to this. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. Adolf Hitler was not a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, and as a result, he is burning in hell right now. This we know. The fruit of Jesus' life sits in sharp contrast to the life of Adolf Hitler. Jesus willingly went to the cross to take upon himself the sins of all those who would believe in him. After choosing to die, Jesus rose from the grave after three days. Just as he removed death from his body, so too Jesus removes the disfigured faith of all of those who he chose to save in eternity past. Jesus is the Savior of men because he is the giver of faith, the giver of belief. And so I ask you today, has Jesus given you faith to believe in him for the salvation of your sins unto eternal life? Has he healed your disfigured faith and given you genuine saving faith in him alone? I pray that he has. Father in heaven, Burden our hearts about what we believe because what we believe directly affects how we behave. And if we are those who are saved, cause us to walk in paths of righteousness for your namesake because there is no other name given among men, given under heaven by which men must be saved than this perfect name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.